welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So Joe, we had a pretty big development happen in the world of finance and markets earlier this month. Yes, we did. Uh, arguably, I mean, arguably the biggest job in finance. <laughs> there is a, right? Wouldn't you say that? Yeah. Uh, we, it concerned the, probably the, the premier job in all of banking and finance. I absolutely would. Uh, so what we're talking about, of course, is Goldman Sachs apparently putting David Solomon in line to become the CEO once Lloyd Blankfein finally, finally resigns. This is something that people have been talking about for a while now, but now they're talking about it in the context of what it means for Goldman and what it says about the changing nature of the bank. Before we go on, I guess you could also say that the succession question for Berkshire Hathaway is right up there in terms of huge finance jobs. But there's something, as you say, very uh, special and relevant about Goldman because, A, it is uh, you know, it's right here on Wall Street. And also because, as you as you put it, it does have these sort of multiple business lines that seem to rise and fall over time, causing the fortunes of the people who are involved with them to sort of rise and fall in sympathy. Exactly. So the trope is basically that Lloyd Blankfein came from this trading background. uh, And the new guy that's coming in, David Solomon, he comes from more of an investment banking background. And that signals where Goldman kind of wants to go. The thinking is that trading, at least in the old style, is dead and it's time for the new Goldman Sachs. So You know, as a former banking reporter, all of this news, this transition uh, made me a a little bit nostalgic, Joe. So I I thought for this episode, we could talk about some old timey trading. Uh, We could talk about, you know, when men were men and traders were traders and most traders were men uh, and and really dig into uh, some of the trading world as it used to be. Yeah, I I mean, it's always fun to talk about trading. And I think people have some image in their mind of what traders do and maybe yell on the phone and yell in an open pit and take huge risks and stuff like that probably looks pretty different today if you're on a trading floor. But people always love those old timey stories. So we have the perfect person to discuss this. It's Cameron Kreis. He's a macro strategist at Bloomberg now, but he was a longtime options trader. And he's going to tell us some of his war stories from trading. How's it going, Cameron? Yeah, very well. It's uh, snowing outside. I'm uh, about ready for the warm weather. Oh, but other seriously. than that, everything's going fantastic. So, Cameron, I got to say, this whole discussion was partly kicked off by a tweet that you put out about a particular character who was trading. But before we get to him, can you sort of set the scene for us? Like, What exactly were you doing when it comes to uh, trading? What was your role exactly? So I'm kind of one of the last uh, of a generation of foreign exchange option traders that essentially served an apprenticeship on a physical exchange. Nowadays, 99.99% of all FX spot and option trades are done over the counter. But back in the early 90s, which is the period we're talking about here, uh, I worked for Swiss Bank Corporation, which had just purchased O'Connor and Associates, which was one of the biggest and most respected option market-making houses in Chicago. And our modus operandi was essentially to have the new crop of uh, future traders serve an apprenticeship on the exchange, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Now, there was still quite a bit of activity here, 
both in Chicago and on the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, which also listed currency options contracts, a lot of the flow, I think, came from European corporations who were looking to hedge some exposure and say dollar mark or dollar Swiss or, or dollar yen uh, or whatever. So we were hired essentially by this firm stuffed full of MIT engineers and sort of Penn Wharton finance whiz kids and then thrown on to the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, which, shall we say, was not full of <laughs> these sorts of people. So, you know, when I started work, I didn't have a, a sort of a financy background. I studied public policy in college. I'd actually been studying abroad when Sterling was ejected from the uh, European exchange rate mechanism in 1992, which sort of fostered my interest in foreign exchange. Uh, so when I was hired six months later, I said, yeah, I want to go into FX and had these interviews with these really smart guys. And they were all guys. Uh, and then started uh, on the floor of the Merck, not really knowing what to expect, but sort of thinking that it would be just full of people similar to the ones with whom I'd interviewed. You hear stories about this, about people who don't have a traditional finance background, just sort of willing their self into the space. What made you think you could do it? And what do you think your interviewers saw in you that, you know, this opportunity to learn and to be an apprentice and to sort of be, get involved in this very exciting area. What do you think they saw in you that you had that made them willing to take a chance? Well, there were a couple of things. One was a sort of familiar, familiarity or an intuition for probability theory, mm. understanding uh, essentially expected values, expected value type payouts. Uh, and a second was mental math, because when you're on, uh, certainly when you're on an exchange floor trading options, you have to be very, very sharp and very, very quick at mental math being able to add and subtract relatively quick. And I'll explain sort of the mechanism in a second. And while I, I'm no sort of quant or higher uh, mathematics genius, my mental math was very good. So they asked me a few, you know, a few questions. What's 70% of 854 or something like that? And I could figure it out back then uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and so that was sort of a prerequisite that they were looking for to be able to trade options uh, on an exchange floor. And so the mechanism for trading options is is you would have a sort of a set of of sheets we call them paper sheets that were filled with theoretical values where there'd sort of be the price of the underlying a range of prices of the underlying uh, on the on sort of the top on the x-axis and then a list of strike prices on the y-axis and a list of theoretical values so it was essentially a grid so right. as spot moved and as the strike price moved you'd have a theoretical value for a given level of implied volatility for, for an option. Um, now, this was based on a flat volatility curve. Uh, obviously, in reality, market option values are kurtotic, i.e. out-of-the-monies are different from the at-the-money, and their skew sometimes puts are a different value from calls. And so you had to be cognizant of, of these dynamics. And you know, we, were all, we were always very dismissive of people and of firms. Some firms actually built this in to their theoretical value sheets, and we just called them sheet monkeys, because all <laughs> they could do was parrot off what was on the sheets. And if and as volatilities moved and as markets moved, you had to be able to essentially adjust on the fly. Now, if you were used to doing that for everything, it became much easier right. than it was if you were just used to saying, all right, it's worth 40 on the sheets, so I'm 39.41. Uh, for us, maybe it was worth 37 on the sheets, and you were 40.42 or something like that. 
So Cameron, armed with your mathematical uh, abilities, what were your first days or weeks actually like? Because I imagine no matter how well adapted you were to this work, it must have been something of a culture shock. It was a total culture shock because based on the interview process, I assumed that sort of mental acuity was the primary distinguishing feature of all the participants in the market. And I quickly realized that the primary asset that most people on the exchange floor had was size and volume. If you were, essentially, it was full of ex Big Ten football players, um, <laughs> seriously, in 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 the pit. And it, it, I mean, it was really, it was an amazing sight because you have the pit, which was full of market makers, and that would be ringed with brokers, and then the brokers each would have somebody, a clerk, standing next to them. So there was, it was a very complex chain of communication. So there'd be, say, um, say ED and F man, which was a, a, a big broker, they would have an office somewhere. And in there, there would be a, a broker talking to a customer. Uh, so the customer wants to do a trade. The broker would then ring the exchange and there would be a box, you know, sort of like an, it was almost like an amphitheater. Mm-hmm. So there'd be rows and rows and there'd be boxes with phone clerks who would be then on the phone with the guy in the office or the person in the office, they would then get the order. They would signal down to the pit where the clerk, whose job was, was just- Was that a hand signal? Yeah, just hand signals. Okay. And I'll talk about those in a second. So the clerk, the pit clerk, whose only job was essentially to watch the guy on the phone, would then see what the order was, whisper to his broker, his pit broker. Then the broker would start screaming, you know, I need a price in, in Mark 65 puts- 2000 up, which would mean, you know, this mark would be obviously the, the, uh, the contract, the Deutschmark. Uh, 65 would be the strike price, and 2000 would be 2000, 2000 contracts. Uh, and then it would be a scramble. Everyone would look at their sheets, figure out what the theoretical value was, then figure out what their price was, you know, two, four. So what was your role in this ecosystem? So I was a trading assistant. We all started as, as trading assistant. Uh, well, the theoretical name was trading assistant. The reality was clerk. Uh, and it was basically dog's body. Do all the grunt work for the trader in the pit. So we, the relationship between our pit trader and the overall bank was that there would be an over-the-counter trader who would run the over-the-counter book in an office at the Chicago Board of Trade in Chicago, and we would be a liaison between that uh, overall book trader uh, and portfolio manager, if you will, and our uh, guy in the pit. And so we would be a channel of communication, both upwards and downwards. So if something happens in the over-the-counter market, we would then have to tell our guy in the pit, hey, vols are getting paid up, vols are, are getting getting given. And, and the other way, we do a big trade, we tell the guy upstairs what we've done. Now, the... the the unfortunate aspect of this is whenever there was a miscommunication uh, and the trader did something the guy upstairs didn't like, we would essentially bear the brunt mm. of, the, uh, of the anger. So I was told at different times, the world thinks we're stupid and it's your fault. <laughs> and between you three guys, i.e. me, a junior trader and the senior trader, you, know, you don't have a brain, which you know, when you're three months into your job is pretty... Uh, Pretty sobering, <laughs> shall we? Say. I'm not sure if you can get away with that these days with all the sensitivity, uh, sensitivity training. Depends on depends on the context. Yeah. So you know, it basically, you know, working on a pit is very unusual because these days, 
in financial markets, you're, you're, you're essentially you spend 99% of your time working with people who are on your side, i.e. working for the same company. When you're on an exchange, you're spending most of your time working with people for other companies who in many ways are your adversaries. Uh, and that, you know, that requires a bit of a different mentality. And I mean, I'd been working there a month. And our guy in the Deutschmark pit was like the biggest guy. He was the hammer. He was the most important, biggest market maker there. And I remember I'm going to give him some cards or picking up, we, you know, you would literally, they do a trade, they would scribble it on a card and we'd have to pick it up and then enter it. We, there was a guy we hired that, you know, that just entered his job, it was to enter, it, enter the trades into the system. So every, every so often we have to go and pick up his cards so they would go into the system because there was a cutoff point, you know, something like half an hour after a trade was done, it had to be entered into the, into the Merck system. So I'm standing at the edge of the pit trying to pick up cards from my guy. And next thing I know, he's throwing a punch at another trader. <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, I'm fresh out of college. What's the first thing you do when you see one of your buddies, you know, get into a scrap? Well, you grab the other guy from behind. And I remember <laughs> the, guy, the guy looks at me. He's like, let him go, get out of here, and then throws another punch. So uh, he ended up getting essentially banned wow. from, from trading on, on the Merck. Uh, for sort of you know, violent conduct or whatever, or fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, I was not banned, so st- stuck around. But it was sort of a, you know, it was sort of a real um, introduction, uh, sort of cold water, ice bucket challenge, if you will, to the combative nature of, of, of the business. And like I said, it was full of really loud, really big guys. And physical size was a real asset because in a crowded pit, if there's a broker across the pit, that has a big order that you want to trade on. Listen, the broker is going to allocate the trades based on who's right in front of his face. So obviously, the bigger you are, the more bodies you can sort of shove out of the way to get into the broker's face and make sure you get your your share of the order. Uh, now, I'm not sure if I can say this on a Bloomberg podcast. And so the guy that replaced our our <laughs> this sort should of, be good. Our sort of would be Mike Tyson was like an Oompa Loompa. He was about five <laughs> foot nothing. Is sort of a skinny guy. <laughs> And he, he managed to carve out his space, not through physical uh, prominence, but through flatulence. So <laughs> I, I wish I were kidding, but I'm, I'm not. So this, you know. just, this just took so many different, each, each description here was like another twist that I didn't see coming. So, I mean, I, I, you know, you can delete this bit if you need no, to, it's, but it's, it's you know, it was, it, it, it was, you know, that was what it was like. You had to, you used every edge you can, even if it was last night's dinner. Um, okay. So. <laughs> All right. I get, I get the yeah, picture. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay, um, I get the picture. Cameron, can I ask, you know, more broadly, what rituals did you observe on the trading floor while you were there? Well, rituals. I mean, we... I mean, we had to be in the office every day at 5.30 in the morning to sort of run the sheets and, and do all the prep work. And then we would had to walk from the Board of Trade to the Merck. And we'd, we had these big brown sort of satchels that we called the footballs because we had to, you know, sort of, you carry them under, it's, it's big, it's brown, you carry it under your arm, it's football. You know, get there, do the pre- preparatory work. There was always one of us that had to go over even earlier to deal with the previous day's out trades. Um, so any mistakes between what you'd put in the system and what the Merck had in the system uh, had to be resolved before the next day's trading. And so you'd show up at sort of 6.30 in the morning, and the guy you were dealing with inevitably smelled of last night's rum and coke. 
I mean, I mean, it was this was real Chicago, sort of South Side Chicago, working class guys you were dealing with. Other than that, really, the the primary thing was you would you learn to bet and make prices on anything. You know, how high is the ceiling? Oh, um, I'm 80, 85 feet for you. You know, and then you'd someone would deal on deal on your price, and you you'd look it up. So and that's something that just became part of the culture. Yeah, I, I, outside of the actual exchange of options, people just got that inclination. Yeah, you yeah. would bet on anything. So obviously, this is quite timely. March Madness yeah. was a big thing. So there would be all over the floor. There was this essentially floor wide betting system where the team that would win the tournament would go out worth a hundred bucks, and everyone else is worth zero. So you would make prices and deal on and run a book of NCAA teams. So this year, um, you know, maybe Virginia would be, I don't know, 18, 20 would be the price. So you, yeah. you'd need to pay 20 bucks to buy Virginia. And if they won, they would go out worth 100. And if they didn't win, they would go out worth zero. Is this, I'm actually very curious about this because I've heard of, there are people out there who just have this inclination to bet on everything. Like uh, I read a story once about some poker player who, saw a fly on a window, and he's like, I'll bet that fly takes off for the next 30 seconds. And yeah. They made a price. Do you think that is the type of thing that people hone over time, or are there simply people who just see the world with sort of numbers and odds floating over everything they look at? I think it's a combination of nature and nurture, to be honest with you. The sort of person that's interested in financial markets will naturally tend, I think, to view the world through that prism. So yeah. in that sense, there's a, there's a natural affinity between wanting to work in financial markets and wanting to sort of assess the probability of various things, whether it's the stock market going up or a fly flying off the wall. But certainly the uh, pattern of behavior of making a price on anything sort of aggressively was, was at least from my perspective, learned. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't walk around in college saying, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm 86, 88 on how I did on that test, right? Uh, whereas, you know, maybe when I was taking an exam six months into my professional career, that's the sort of thing uh, I would have said. So there were a few things that, uh, sort of outrageous things that happened in terms of, in terms of bets. So re- referencing the NCAA, sort of the, the, the year before I started, apparently a clerk for one of the big banks had run this enormous book having um, sort of liabilities with all sorts of people all over the floor. And basically, he lost a lot of money, couldn't make good. And so essentially, the bank that he was working for had to make good to maintain a sort of professional, you know, a professional standing. Wait, within, this was, was an NCAA pool that yeah, he was yeah, running yeah, yeah. and the bank had he to was, back he, him up. He wasn't running. You know, he was part. No, just, but, yeah, yeah. He, but he like got into some beds that were just yeah, basically, and the bank felt that they had basically, to backstop Yeah, guy. basically they were the they were the New York Fed yeah. to this guy's Lehman, <laughs> right? There was a there was a broker that ate a, a foot of cockroaches. Uh, so oh, well, no. you know, cock, cockroaches yeah, lined yeah, up uh, lined up in a foot. People bet, oh, will he do it? Will he not do it? He did it. I'd do that. There was a guy Wait, there was Where did he get the cockroaches from? Yeah, that I'm, I wasn't privy to, to the source. It's Chicago, is it? The uh, that's like the Chicago, um, the Chicago unofficial national anthem is like called like "Cockroaches on the March" or something. So I don't think they're hard. To yeah, find uh, they rarely are, right? Yeah. So there was a, a particularly memorable one. Is there was a, a rather portly clerk trading, uh, not even a trading. He was a broker's clerk, and he, the somehow it got the 
the, the instance came up, you know, how many Reese's cups could this guy eat? And so somehow 50, 50 packs of Reese's cups, you know, at one sitting. So it's sort of like the Chicago version of Paul Newman yeah, the and Cool Hand Luke. How many Reese's cups can this guy eat? And there must have been, you know, can, and then it just devolved to can he or can he not eat 50 packs of Reese's cups in one sitting? And there must have been 30 or 40 grand amongst all the brokers <laughs> on this. And like, you know, the day before the big day, it was going to happen after the close. Everyone was going to go. The guy comes up sort of looking bashful. And he's like, well, I went to the doctor and he said I could go into sort of glycemic. He didn't. Yeah. He said sugar shock, but I'm assuming some sort of glycemic shock if I eat 50 Reese's cups. And, you know, everyone was really just I was long. I was really disappointed because someone had asked him like the day before, well, how much do you actually like Reese's cups? And the guy like looks at us and says, oh, they're my favorite. <laughs> right? So that sort of tilts the odds in your favor. I remember once I had to ring the Chicago Aquarium because there was a big debate on who would win, a great white shark or a killer whale. Now, I think the Discovery Channel made a documentary about this about 10 years ago, but we knew well in advance because I'd, I'd, I had to ring some marine biologist, the Chicago Aquarium, and say, oh, yes, this is Cameron Kreiss from Swiss Bank Corporation. We're having a debate here. <laughs> you know, who would win? And he's like, well, I think the killer whale's smarter, so I think the killer whale would win, which was the deduction of the National Geographic or Discovery Channel, whatever it was, uh, docu- documentary. So we knew, we knew well in advance. So, so yes, so there were all sorts of little hijinks that, that, that went on for sure. So, Cameron, you have um, some characters, to say the least, uh, on the trading floor, but you also have some characters in terms of your clients, right? Like, who stands out to you now? Well, as a market maker on the floor, certainly, all, all your, really, your only point of reference is the, is the brokers. Uh, and and that, those were just personalities. You didn't know the end client behind that. You, won't, you only sort of learn that once you sort of moved, if you will, upstairs. But even there... There, I mean, sort of. They say past is prologue, right? There was, there was one broker in particular in the Deutschmark pit. Now I won't name, but had the sort of orange fake tan. Was sort of loud and obnoxious. It's sort of. Uh, I'll just leave. I'll I'll leave it there. <laughs> but it, it it was funny. The sort of the um, the the hand signals that that the that people would use to indicate, say, which broker was doing which trade were you know were kind of funny. So if it were Goldman, the pit broker would point to their hand like a gold ring. If it was Payne Weber, they'd point to the neck, so a pain in the neck. Shearson, scissors, Shear- and if it were Deutsche Bank, they would point. I know to, this one. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they would point to the spot. You know, basically point to the septum. The Hitler mustache. Yeah, the Hitler mustache. Which, uh, <laughs> right. You know, again, perhaps not politically correct, but you know. You, you have sh- to communicate somehow. You, yeah, exactly. You, you, know, you knew what they meant. Um, so once I eventually moved upstairs, and, and in fairness, away from trading more towards, I uh, spent some time in, in sort of sales and sometimes in strategy, you, know, you got to see the big ticket clients over the counter, both in terms of spot and in terms of, in terms of options. And that was, you know, that was interesting because, for example, during the Asian crisis, I was actually working in Singapore. So that was incredibly useful to see how various hedge funds were behaving, you know, around that time. People who were long dollar tie bot, seeing it explode higher, but then having to pay sort of 500% on an overnight basis to fund the position. You know, it was just interesting to see how, yeah. how, you know, how they reacted. And you, I mean, you could certainly see that some clients, some hedge funds in particular, would take advantage of illiquidity. 
which I guess isn't, you know, that's not a great surprise to anybody, unless you're naive, but they would trade to not to get best execution, but in a sense to get worst execution to push the price, which... Ah. I'm curious, uh, so you mentioned interesting personal days, like the days the uh, the day the trader got into the fist fight, but you sort of anticipated where I was going to go when you mentioned the Asian crisis. Are there any specific days in market history that people would remember that strike you as having been particularly interesting or intense from the floor perspective? From the floor perspective, I mean, a few that, that come to mind uh, was, I mean, and this is nothing special in the annals of history. I remember on Valentine's Day, 1994, which was like a week or two after the Fed first put rates up in that tightening cycle, yeah. dollar yen fell like you know, six or seven percent in a day, which was sort of mayhem. A year later, I was actually working in Paris at this time because the Matif, which was the futures exchange in Paris, saw that all these French corporates were trading on the floor in Chicago and in Philadelphia and decided, well, we want, you know, we want some of that action. So I spoke a bit of French. So I got sent out there as sort of a senior clerk, junior trader type guy. So when the dollar collapsed in sort of early spring of 1995, I mean, we rarely saw volume on that on that floor, but even us, we were super, super busy because there was all sorts of demand to sort of take advantage of or hedge a following dollar. And this was right after the Kobe earthquake in Japan that also saw Nick Leeson blow up. So that just injected general level of volatility uh, across all financial markets. But, you know, going back to clients or individual trading, I mean, I, one and sort of if you will, taking advantage of market discrepancies. I was working in Philadelphia for a summer after I left, uh, after I left Paris, again, trading FX options on the exchange in Philadelphia. And there was a big client there who I, it was some sort of French corporate and Lord knows what they were doing, but they used to do these really complicated spreads in dollar mark and dollar Paris, which was dollar French franc, where they would do these option butterflies and they would swap one for the other. And they really had no economic value. So I, I think the guy was just trying to pay his broker for some, some other service or something. Um, but you always knew which way he was going to go. <laughs> so it might be worth, say, theoretical value of zero, but you know he's buying it. So you would make it, say, 10 basis points at 20 basis points. Um, and then it just became a game of not even cat and mouse. It was just hit and hope, kind of, because you knew... This, again, this thing is worth zero. Theoretical value is zero. Market value is zero. You're 10 bid because you know the guy's going to pay 20 for it or at least pay sort of 16 or 18 for it. So you're giving him the massive read. But you're, you're out there. Hmm. Your price is out there. And if someone wants to sell it to you, you've got to essentially you've got to honor the price. And if you get hit, if your bid gets hit, then the, the, the guy in Chicago who's running the overall book says, you know, what kind of moron are you to pay this much over the theoretical value price. If you sell it, then you're, you're a, you know, then you're a genius. Uh, but if you get given, you know, you're a moron. So just that waiting game of who, you know, who's going to respond to the phone first, the client or someone else, you know, Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or someone else who's not on the exchange floor. I, did, I personally didn't enjoy that because it, you know, it's sort of a, a coin flip as to whether you're a genius or an idiot. And you know, I'd like to have a little control, more control over my destiny than, you know, who, who answers the phone first. 
Okay, so speaking of Destiny, we alluded to this a, a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but there's been this ongoing discussion of whether the decline of trading is a cyclical or a secular phenomenon, i.e. whether it's temporary or something that's going to be around for a very, very long time. I mean, listening to some of your stories from the 90s, I cannot imagine that that kind of trading ecosystem is ever, ever going to come back. How do you view that debate and how do you think the markets are going to proceed going forward in terms of trading? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, even going back to where we were in sort of 2009, I mean, I remember even like five or six years ago when I was a macro hedge fund portfolio manager, we would sort of sit there and look at each other uh, as volatility declined to something close to zero and many of the stuff, many of the assets we were trading and sort of saying, hey, the game is over. Everyone out of the pool. And you've sort of seen that to a degree in terms of the return stream over the last five or six years, not only of sort of macro hedge funds, but active management across other asset classes, or certainly equities generally. And I, I, I think there's a few things here that are, are driving, a, if you will, a permanent change in market conditions. Uh, obviously, the regulatory environment uh, being number one, both in terms of market abuse, although I think that was generally speaking overstated in macro products. But number two, just in terms of the amount of risk you can take, the fact that banks can't prop trade in most assets, that's a change. The fact that the edge that many hedge funds may have had in the past in terms of information, uh, being a, seeing that regulators can now ex post say, well, you shouldn't have done that and you know we're going to fine you or close you or in very rare occasions send you to jail, that also changes um, changes the you know the calculus yeah. and and let's face it the advent of more quantitative trading arbitrage trading uh, the algos uh, whatever you want to call it as well as sort of the more passive strategies have taken a lot of the edge out of the market and that's one of the reasons I think all this whole crypto thing is has received so much attention is that this is cl- that is clearly an inefficient market. And the less efficient the market, the more the risk premium there is to be harvested. Well, I have to imagine that any trading environment which was characterized by someone up in a booth sending hand signals to a guy whose main advantage in life is that he's, you know, over six foot tall, must be riven with inefficiencies that a computer very quickly can ring out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, let's let's put this in, in, in crazy perspective. I mean, I started my career a year after the World Wide Web was invented, right? So mm. the whole internet thing was basically a non-starter in terms of financial markets and, and the speed with which information could flow. In terms of that floor culture that you described, was there like a moment that you felt like, okay, this is coming to an end, like where you saw that it was still active and there was money to be made, but that it felt like the writing was on the wall. Well, I think when I when I went to Paris, which was r- literally only nine months into my career, the fact that the French corporations wouldn't trade on the French exchange, that kind of didn't smell right. And so, you know, for better or for worse, I spent a little over a year kind of just cooling my heels, which stunted my professional development uh, almost certainly. But by the same token, I was sort of 23 and getting paid to live in Paris. So, you know, the, the complaints were, weren't too, vo- too vociferous. But, yeah, I mean, then when I went to Philly and there was the occasional big ticket trade that I described earlier. But other than that, again, 
we spent a lot of our time kicking our heels versus even two years previously when I was in Chicago, it was generally a steady flow of, of activity. You could see even then, even over that two years, the business was migrating away from that exchange environment much more towards, so an, toward, towards an over-the-counter. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I wouldn't describe it as unlucky. It's just a, you know, a circumstance of, uh, circumstance of right. history, really. And mar- you know, as we've seen, markets evolve. And th- that was a classic evolution uh, from a, a less efficient, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, there's a financial market uh, law of thermodynamics. You know, in thermodynamics, entropy always increases. And generally speaking, in, in markets, efficiency doesn't always increase, but it generally increases. But certainly, when you talk about a chain of com- a chain of communication that's maybe five links long versus a click of a mouse button, I mean that's only going one way, isn't it? Yeah. All right, Joe, are, are you okay leaving it there? I mean, I could actually listen to Trader Floral Hydrinks for like five hours, but I think maybe it's time to leave it there. All right, Cameron Kreis, uh, that was an amazing conversation. Thank you for bringing um, the 90s world of trading to life with the flatulent Oompa Loompas and various other things. Thank you. (laughs) My pleasure. So, Joe... I don't know where to begin. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation, but it is basically talking about a lost world, isn't it? I wasn't being facetious when I said we could uh, do that for five hours. Now I'm wondering whether we should do like a little spin-off odd lots where we do like a uh, 10-part series really recounting the glory days because I have definitely not laughed that hard on any of our previous episodes. <laughs> I did not see the flatulent Oompa Loompas coming up. Like, I... No. That was a curveball. I did not. Um, I hope you're glaring at our producer right now and making sure that he's going to keep that into the uh, podcast. But I would I definitely be oh, on board um, for more on this discussion. But there is there's a serious theme underlying all of these funny stories, which is the degree to which markets really have changed. And a lot of people would say they've become more efficient, they've become safer in various ways, but there are some criticisms around the edges of what markets have turned into. So for instance, there's this pervasive argument about lower liquidity because banks aren't doing proprietary trading anymore. So there is a serious discussion here. I doubt anyone has realistically lost out from the fact that we don't do hand signals on an actual floor anymore, but you know what I mean. But yeah, and there are certainly people who, I, who probably would make that argument that although volatility has been incredibly low for a while now, that if we did have more sort of natural handbrakes and more people involved in the process, that we wouldn't have these extraordinary volatility spikes that come out of nowhere that are supposed to only happen one out of every 5,000 years, but it seemed to happen one every two years. So you do lose something. I mean, on net, I do think it's probably good for markets Overall, that being a, a, a Big Ten football player is not uh, <laughs> an advantage. Although I'm biased because I'm, you know, five foot nine, basically. So I'm, I'm pro this change. So I'm biased as well because uh, I think, as Cameron mentioned, there were virtually no women on the floor at that period of time. Um, but anyway, uh, should we call it a day? Let's call it a day. 
All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow Cameron Kreiss, our Bloomberg macro strategist on Twitter. He's great. At Fifth Rule. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Topher Forges. He's on Twitter at Forges T, as well as our Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.